Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. Hey, I heard you needed inspiration. He's Ilana and friends with some revelations. Little known back to the day, every little thing's gonna be A-OK. Little known fact about my guest today, she wrote an incredible book called Painting Can Save Your Life, and it is one of the most beautiful, informative, instructive, part memoir, part how-to, and it will really give people like me and maybe like you who always saw themselves as not able to paint a whole new perspective on why they can. Welcome the extraordinary Sarah Wooster to the podcast. A-OK. Hey everyone, my guest today is the painter, teacher, and founder of the Painting School in Brooklyn, New York, Sarah Worcester. Sarah's work has been on exhibit in the United States and internationally. She has illustrated several children's books and her animations, multimedia, and collaborative performances have been shown in venues including the Hammer Museum, UCLA, and many, many more. She is married to the artist Rob Fisher, and together they have established artist residencies in northern Minnesota and Bleakley House in New York. You're going to hear the word artist a lot today, not just in her bio read, but as we talk about her life and her incredible book, which is called Painting Can Save Your Life, How and Why We Paint by Sarah Worcester. Um, Sarah. Hello. Oh, thank you. I love your podcast. So I'm so excited to be here. All right. Well, I love any kind of mutual admiration society. It makes the <laughs> entire conversation easier. Um, the thing about your beautiful book is if I, I was trying to describe it to someone today, and it's not just one thing, it's part memoir, part history of painting, part how-to manual, but you have seamlessly kind of woven together all the themes in this, you know, extraordinarily beautiful hardcover book that is also filled with your beautiful paintings and paintings of famous artists as well. And it is one of the most uniquely inspiring books I've really ever had the privilege of holding in my hands and reading. So congratulations. Oh, done it. thank you so much. That means so much coming from you because I feel like you, your whole show is about craft, you know, so you're someone who deep dives in craft. So I appreciate that. Well, it's really thrilling because I've had artists from so many different walks of life on the show. Um, but you uh, are one of the first visual artists that I've had on um, that have figured out a way because it's really hard to talk about craft, right? Like that is the challenge. It's so personal and subjective, um, and sometimes it's really hard to find the language for it, which is why it's a really incredible thing with someone with your level of skill has also chosen to teach 
because we need teachers who are able to put into language um, something that can feel so impossible for those of us who just haven't grown up doing it to do. So I would love to just start off by just talking about your book, but for those of you listening who haven't had a chance to buy it yet or read it yet, I asked Sarah just to choose a short passage from the book to share, just so you got a little sense of her tone as a writer and what makes her um, uniquely gifted, not just as a painter and a teacher, but as a writer and an all-around artist. Um, do you mind? No, yeah. I'd love to. Um, this, is from a, this is from a chapter called What Makes the Painting Great, because I do think that's one of the things that's really difficult to teach people, uh, especially beginner painters, like why why is why am I complimenting what you're doing there versus what you did in that one? You know, why why do I think you should stretch something in that area or you know focus on that area? Sorry. Um, because you know, there's a if sorry, if you focus if you teach people about art history and teach people what a great, you know, and I'm gonna use quotation marks here, painting, what, what constitutes a great painting and what attributes are part of it, I think then their own paintings start to make sense to them. So this is just part of that chapter talking about some people I know who are pretty um, fanatical about great versus good. And I'm sure everybody knows that. I'm sure you have people who are like, I will only see great theater and we listen to great music and you know, so that's kind of about these people. Um, I spent a lot of time with my friend Pete in my early 20s. His house was nothing more than guitars, amplifiers, computer gear, and milk crates full of albums. His collection ranged from surf guitar gods to Joni Mitchell to hardcore punk. Pete categorizes music into great or terrible and has no allegiance to any one genre. His passion for a musician's music is in direct relation to that musician's passion for making music. Music being made by people like Betty Lavette and The Replacements and Junior Brown and Nina Simone and Nico Case and Nick Cave was extra great to him because of the heart the artist injected into their art. And if Pete didn't like whatever music was playing on the crappy car stereo of my Honda Civic, he ejected the tape from the tape deck and threw it out the car window while I was driving. I sometimes feel like throwing paintings out of a moving car too. I don't like navel gazing art made by self-satisfied art world cultures. I couldn't care less about work that is only interested in offending people. I have no interest in art that is all brain and no soul or anything that was phoned in for profit. I like brush strokes, hatch marks, rough edits, and direct proof that what I'm looking at is the work of a human being. I like artwork that is made by people who care deeply and try hard, but that's just me. Greatness is subjective and it is up to you to define it for yourself. You know, we find out in your book early on that you grew up in South Dakota. And I and now you live in Brooklyn. So like what a journey in, in, in um, <laughs> geographical life. Can you just talk about sort of growing up in South Dakota and sort of how you think that influences you even today? Yeah, definitely. I grew up I grew up in a house where my mom was a librarian. So we had books going in and out. Um, she had the stereo going all the time. My dad is a ranch kid from a completely isolated part of Western South Dakota. And there is a lot of music happening in those farm and ranch houses because, you know, in the forties and fifties, there wasn't much else to do. So they played music. That's what they did together. And a lot of them were writers. I, I come from a lot of journalists, uh, English teachers, English professors. So um, creative, you know, there's a creative lineage that I'm lucky enough to be part of, but it's not uncommon 
in rural communities at all. It was honestly, there wasn't, <laughs> there wasn't that much to do if you lived in an isolated place. And so that music was often, often the thing that people turned to. But um, I was also lucky enough, I think in the acknowledgements, the Sioux Falls Department of Education, because they funded so much, so much arts. Like we had an amazing drama teachers, we had amazing, you know, visual arts and band and choir. So I was so lucky to have access to it my whole life. Um, I did have to leave at a certain point because back then before the internet, there wasn't really that many options to make a living doing art. Now it's so different. You could be selling on Etsy or Instagram or, you know, build a profile. Um, so people don't have to leave smaller communities anymore, but back then you kind of did. So that's why I left. You know, for a lot of people who, even if they are obviously tremendously gifted, even to a, a non-artist, they, you know, it, it's just clear to everyone, like this person is gifted. Many parents are really trepidatious about their oh. kids embarking on a life in the arts, even today, even, even though there are so many more opportunities, not just to sell it, but like ways in which the computer allows people to make art, like just a million different ways to kind of use your artistic talent, not just brush and canvas or pen mm -hmm. and paper or whatever. So you describe your family as being like incredibly um, open and surrounding your life with the arts. But when it became clear that this might be something you pursue in a really serious way, what was the response to that? A hundred percent supportive. I mean, they, my, my brother is a screenwriter and had used to have a stand-up troupe in LA. And my sister has been in the theater community on the, on the kind of managing business side um, for decades in Minneapolis. Uh, my dad, I always say my dad was doing Oprah before Oprah was born. Like he was, that's his idea is like, you are put on the planet to do something and you're going to get signals and signs of what you're supposed to do. And, and there's kind of, he's, he's a big believer in that, which is so funny because I mean, he's like a cattle man. He's like a, he worked in the Sioux Falls stockyards for 40 years and that it's not a traditional, probably POV that you think people would have, but they are a hundred percent supportive with their terrible art with fell through their kids making terrible financially based choices. <laughs> so tell me like when, how early on can you remember as you go back in your own memory? And so much of this is in the book also. Um, early influences and aunt who was just so incredibly supportive of you and kind of recognized your gift early on. But when did you sort of, what's your earliest memory of making something? I mean, I remember, honestly, I remember drawing on from an early, early age from National Geographic. And I actually have some of those still. My mom had saved them just copying, you know, a lot of copying. Um, but I, again, my parents were so supportive. There was a small uh, community arts like in the local community museum, they could take art classes. I remember going down there to do art classes and calligraphy lessons. And um, I just always, that always appealed to me to visually kind of communicate with people. Um, and then in high school, I had an amazing teacher and that's when I got more serious about it, you know, cause she brought us a lot of great inspiration and tools. How old were you when you started painting? The first painting I have is actually hanging up in my parents' basement, um, and it was in high school. It was the first time I had access to acrylic paint. Yeah, and then I went to I went I studied painting at the University of Minnesota, and then I had oil, and you know, kind of experimented with all the other options. 
And looking back, you know, you talk about, you, you read a passage of your friend and you named all of those artists that he listened to and loved. Um, who were some of the early painters that really inspired you? You know, so many young artists find their favorite actor, their favorite uh -huh. and sort of mimic until they kind of find their own voice. So who were the artists that you were trying to emulate when you first started out? Yeah, I love mimic. It's so true because I mean, at least in visual art, you're mimicking. Honestly, I there was a painter named Susan Rothenberg. Um, I'm sure you would recognize her paintings. If they're these giant horses, but really a lot of heart and them, very expressionistic. And for a long time, I basically copied her paintings. She was known for horses. I would do like sheep. <laughs> I didn't even try to hide the fact that I was stealing. But she was a huge influence um, there. You know. I really wanted to connect with a lot of women artists and there weren't that many options we were exposed to. So she was a big influence. Um, Faith Ringgold, who I adore, she had a, a giant painting I saw that kind of changed the game for me when I was slightly older. Uh, and then Nancy Sparrow, um, Matisse. And my personal favorite of all time is Manet, but I didn't really grow to appreciate him until later, until I was older. I just um I just went to the Met. My mom's 90th birthday was on Monday. Uh -huh. That's what she wanted to do. She wanted to go to the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And we always end up at some point in the Impressionist room. Oh, yeah. And then we were lucky enough to have a guide who sort of deep dived into Manet with us. And, um, and that painter remained. You know what? It, he's still really good. It holds up. Right? I know. There's some, I mean, some of them, it doesn't matter. Time is not going to ever, nothing will change that they were just speaking some language that hits us all or capturing light, you know, probably more in Impressionism. It's like, how do you capture that light? And they did it. It's, yeah, it's incredible. So when, you know, growing up, I don't know, are you from Sioux Falls? Is that what you said? Yes. Yeah. So I have not have. I haven't had the privilege yet of being uh, in South Dakota, in your town in my life. I was thinking like, oh, I need to go to the Dakotas and see where my friend Sarah is really from. Um, in your town, I mean, it's a pretty well-known town and, and there are, you know, universities nearby. Uh -huh. Is there a museum that you go to? I mean, I would imagine having a mom who's a librarian, you have access to art books. Uh, yes. But when did you kind of get to really stand in front of something and have that feeling of awe when you're in front of a painting. That would be, they, they do have a great, they have a great, um, the, there's a South Dakota Museum of Art in a town called Brookings. It has a great collection, but I don't remember going there when I was younger. But when I got to school in Minneapolis, um, the Minneapolis Art Institute is got a phenomenal collection. So that was the first time I remember seeing some of those Monets face to face. Like they have a haystacks there. Um, they had just really amazing France Mark, this blue horse. I remember just standing and just being in awe. And they also have the Walker Art Museum there, which did amazing contemporary shows. So I could see things that were pushing the boundaries of what we were learning. It, it was much more contemporary than what we were being taught in college. Did you always feel talented as an artist? Did you always recognize? And were you able to say out loud, I'm good at this? No, no, <laughs> no. I, I feel like I was very, I felt compelled to do it. And I felt like it was the way that brought me mental health, honestly. 
um, and, and kind of calms me down. I don't know if it's the same feeling you get when you go on stage, if that, or when you're rehearsing or something, it's the, the process really calms me down and centers me. I think my brain naturally kind of is wired a little bit wild, but <laughs> yeah. When you think back to kind of starting out and really like studying art in earnest and making this commitment to getting better and better and you know, as Malcolm Gladwell says, doing your 10,000 yeah. hours of practice as a painter. What did you, and going to art school and, and traveling in the world and, and, and seeing art in, in museums and galleries all over the world at some point, what was it that you wanted to do? Like when you thought about being an artist, because you make art in so many different areas and, and so many different mediums, like what, what did it mean to you to be an artist profession. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it, it's a lifestyle. I mean, it's a, it's kind of, I wanted to be with other people making stuff, honestly, as much as it is about my own experience. Like there's probably the two parts. It's what it does for me. Like I just said, it calms me down and, and centers me, but it also is, is the tool to meet people that are also like me and want to make stuff and feel a little bit out of the bounds of what's what's accepted behavior um so yeah I mean I've always felt like the, the people making art I love having craft conversations I love talking to people I'm so jealous of people that work in film and theater and bands because I would love to be more in an art that's more collective um painting is such a loner art writing is such a loner art um but yeah I let the community I've built around painting and now teaching is the greatest gift of my life for sure so before writing this book, because I only know you as a as a visual artist, uh -huh. and and for those of you, you know, who don't know, because why would you know? I know Sarah because we both live in this really special village in Brooklyn, <laughs> New York, um, and many of us became friends because our kids went to the same school, and all of these relationships were built between pick up and drop off each day. Yeah. Um, and at one point, Sarah, whose art we all admired and her husband is also an incredible artist, um, offered up this idea of creating a, a painting class for basically moms in the neighborhood, although other, it was welcome, everyone was welcome, but it was definitely yeah. moms who who signed up for the first round. Um, and, and so, that's how I know you, both as someone who does it and then someone who started teaching it and inspiring all these people in our community. But the writing part, because your book is just, you know, I just probably read 60 books over the past few months because I hosted these weekly author events um, yeah. with, with like sometimes six to seven authors per panel. So I've been reading in every genre for the last six months nonstop. And when I tell you that your book is on par with some of the most established authors of our generation in terms of the like beautiful way in which you write, um, is this your first book or am I like not aware of other books that you've written? Before? Oh, well, first of all, thank you because I've listened to your panels and so I know who you've talked to. So that's such a compliment. Um, uh, this is my first book. I've had essays published before. I've been working on a, a novel um, for years, but it's not been published. But um, yeah, it's again, I, I come from a family of writers. So I was always writing, you know, that was always kind of my, my personal private 
work, you know, the versus the art. But I always kind of thought I'd merge them somehow. I wasn't sure how that would happen. Um, and this this idea of doing a book about craft, because I, I saw the impact that the painting classes were having, but you know, I'm a working mom, I can't do endless, you know, the number of people I can work with was so limited that I kind of thought I had to do a book um, with this idea. And I love craft books so much. Like I love reading, you know, Stephen King's book on writing or, you know, Mary Oliver's book on poetry. I love books about, about craft, but the craft always kind of has to have a narrative because it's too, it's just too <laughs> dry if you're not wrapping it around some sort of personal story, I think. So then I'd never thought about writing a memoir, which I know that this is being, it's part memoir. So uh, it, that was the challenge. And that was a very strange experience because I'm a pretty private person. And so putting that all out there was, was not actually as hard as I thought. Writing it was really hard, but I don't know if you've, you've tried to write personal narrative, but it's tough. So how did you even begin? Like, what was the process once, you know, everyone has a story of sort of the agent, the editor, and sort of the lucky thing that happened where the idea was purchased by someone and put out in the world. But the actual creative process of writing your book, mm -hmm. um, how, like, what was that like? How did you, how did you kind of, did you create sections in your mind and sort of, I'll write the memoir first, then I'll figure out like the materials and where to buy them part, then the other artists in history part? Like, what was, how did you shape it? For yourself? I think I'm luckier than other people in that I had the class format. So I kind of had to have, so I already had to establish, I knew each chapter kind of was going to follow basically along what I kind of do in the classes. So then I had stories that matched each of personal narratives that kind of applied to what, if the chapter was about light and shadow, I had a personal story about lights. If the, you know, if it's about color, I had a story about, you know, artificial color versus natural color, you know, so that I was actually, I had some sort of cheat sheet almost, you know, because like I was, I had a format, a set format to follow. Um, I don't know how anyone else writes it because I don't, I, I guess you just start from birth and go to the current day, but I uh, was super lucky that I, and I, I've been writing for years, so I've had nuggets in my back pocket, you know, that I could pull from. So that was that. So you were ready to write this book. I was ready. I was ready and I couldn't believe someone was going to let me do it. So yeah, so it was great. How did that happen? Like who gave you permission like, <laughs> in the outside world to, well, to like, not just you think it, but go like, yeah, yeah, no, there's a, there's a place in the marketplace. Yes. I think you need a, an agent with vision, which is what I have. I, I have an agent named Nikki Richardson, who's brilliant and funny and amazing and powerful and we were kind of trying to figure out what the best option was. I wasn't finished with this novel. And she, we were talking and I kind of pitched her. I said, listen, I'd love to do a book where, I don't know if you know Anne Lamott's book, Bird by Bird. It's, it's okay. So it's Bird by Bird meets the you joy You mean the painting. Bible? My Bible? <laughs> yes, I've heard of it. I should have known. I should have known. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's, I, that's how exactly how I pitched it. Bird by Bird meets the joy of painting. And she, of course, was like, I'm in because she's just, She's, I think I could have gone to a hundred other agents and they would have been like, pass, you know, I think because it was an, it's not a genre in visual arts. It's a genre in writing. It's just, I don't know craft books that involve narrative. There's a few and, you know, 
there's Amy Stillman, who's an amazing painter, an amazing writer about art, has a book coming out this month, and I can't wait to get my hands on it because I'm hoping some of her personal stories in there. But um, yeah, so I think having this amazing and brilliant agent who could help me shape it and then put together, we put together a proposal and then shopped it around. It went to auction and then it wound up in an amazing publishing house, uh, Tartar Perigee, which is, which is imprint of Penguin Random House. And they do books like The Artist's Way with Julia Cameron. They do like Drawing on the Rice of the Brain, Betty Edwards. So they do kind of iconic craft books in visual arts. So that was thrilling to wind up there. Um, so yeah, it was just all aligned. The, the problem became that I had a, you know a year to write it and it was the year of the, it's, I started it in April, 2020 in lockdown. So I wrote it while I was locked in the house with my kids and we were doing construction on this house and I was working full time. So it was, it was a challenge. That? But like you did it because I have the book yeah. in my hand. So <laughs> under those circumstances, yeah. how did you do it? Like, how did you do it? When would you write? Five in the morning, five in the morning until seven in the morning, every day, weekends, uh, ear pods in my bed, you know, it was just any time I could steal space or, or time. Um, you know, it was a challenge. It was a huge challenge. It was, it was hard too, because, you know, in, you know, in our neighborhood, if you need to go get work done, you take off and go to a coffee shop or go to the library, you know, there's all these places you can go when it's not a shutdown and those were all closed. It really, it, I had to get a focus I don't normally have in my home, but it, you know, it was, I felt so lucky to be having that project during, I feel like we are just starting to see, and I know I was listening to one of your panels and several of the authors said they wrote this, their projects during COVID, during lockdown. I feel like we're gonna have a renaissance of plays and books and music that came out of that time that we all, you know, that a lot of us were fortunate to have. Yeah. Um, but yeah. When you talk about, because a lot of people listening also have some burning desire to write a book and get it out in the world, whether they're artists themselves or whatever story they want to share. When you say you have an agent because you have this other novel that you've been working on, was that agent connected to that novel that isn't yet out? No, no, she, we just, I knew her and we knew we wanted to work together. And this was kind of the project that brought us together. Okay. So we'd been in conversation. Yes, yes. Okay. I know her socially and we'd been in conversation. And then having this book proposal to work on together is what locked our relationship. And did she help you write the proposal or did she say, hey, yes. Google book proposals and figure it out? <laughs> no, I mean, I did do, I did Google book proposal and right. I, that's just honestly the best way to do it. It tells you, you know, there are endless places where you can just copy the outline format. Um, and then we, of course, I went back and forth with her, but yeah, no, I did start the process myself because it's very easy to find online what that should look like. And that's not something I don't think you want to go out of the box on, <laughs> you know, I don't think you want to present a new format. I think they like, I don't know, I shouldn't say that I'm not an agent, but it seems like that's a pretty set format. Um, and then she helped me perfect it. And so in, in sort of pitching, you know, my world, I know a little bit about pitching TVs and movies um, mm -hmm. and they are, you know, you have to 
it's rare that you can kind of hand in your pitch. You have to go in a room and sort of tell the story to somebody and kind of really make it clear to them, like, why me telling this story? Why? I mean, lots of people can paint. Lots of people have, yeah. you know, uh, childhoods. So lots of people teach it. Sort of what was, what, what do you think it was about you specifically? Because when you talk about the heavy hitters, the artist's way, I mean, the other books that this publishing house has in this um, lane, as it were, mm-hmm. inspirational um, creativity books. Why do you think, what was it about this moment you, what do you think made it all come together the way it did? Like when you talk to the publishers now who aren't scary people who are reading your proposal, they're probably friends now. What was yeah. it, right? Like like in retrospect, what was it that they were like, oh no, this was a no-brainer for us? I think that we got the proposal into a really, really solid place. I spent a lot of time proving that people were spending money on art supplies and I was and that there was a space in the market because a lot of books, there are so many wonderful painting tutorial books. But they're different, you know, than what I'm trying to do. I was trying to have a very quick success curve. So like you wouldn't have to, go, you know, sometimes those books are daunting. And I imagine as a new painter, if you're trying to do it at home alone, it's really daunting. So I wanted a book that you could make a painting by chapter two that you could be like, oh, I just made a painting. And so I had a very different goal in mind than people who are trying to, to teach you how to paint perfectly an apple. Those are totally worthy books and, and different, you know, and great. But I just wanted a different book. So I think I filled a, a, a white space in there, or however they say that, this space in the market. Um, I think um, I had someone really rallying for me and my agent and Nikki. I think that, um, you know, my editor, Sarah Carter, was amazing. I think that she saw that. She's she knows the art world. Um, I think that I just got lucky, honestly, with a lot of people who it passed through and, and who it reached. So I want to ask you something, and I want you to be really honest. Do you think everyone can paint, or is it true? Like, I really am one of those people who make literally the same stick figure that I made when I was in first grade. Like, if you ask me to draw a house, it still looks like the same house. And the cat in front of the house still looks like the same cat. And I, so I have zero, um, I don't want to use the word artistic talent. I have zero natural ability or my natural ability has not matured past my first grade instincts about how to make something. Um, Can you speak to that? Definitely. I would no, I no, I would say, first of all, you could just not be meant to be drawing. There's a big difference between drawing and painting. And actually, a lot of programs, like if you go to the very wonderful um, program, like the Artist Student League, or one of these very amazing places where you paint from a nude model, they don't even let you touch paint for a year. You have to draw, you know, some of these, I'm not sure if that particular place, but many of these places you have to draw and learn the anatomy and all of that. I think that's wonderful for some people. I think it prevents other people from getting to the paint and they might be really good at painting and really bad at drawing. I'm not a great draftsperson. I'm not a great drawer, um, but I am a a good painter. Um, And I think the opposite is true. Some people might be amazing at drawing and they might not have much luck with 
I can't do watercolor painting to save my life. So, you know, I think, I think if someone has an urge to be a visual person, they should experiment with ceramics and watercolor. And, you know, just because you feel like you can't draw and also you just might not have been taught perfect, you know, well (laughs) to draw, but um, doesn't mean you can't paint. I've had many people and many are mutual friends of ours who told me they absolutely had they so scared to take the class, they couldn't paint. I mean, I don't know if you want me to name names, but the last class I taught with Erin, I mean, she did, she was like, I haven't painted since grade school. And this boy who sat next to me told me I was a terrible artist. And there's actually, there's a term for that. It's called creative mortification. When someone shuts you down creatively and it prevents you you always think you're not a creative person so she comes in the first day the first class she does amazing I mean she did absolutely beautiful painting she is a painter I will say that and she might not be a drawer though I mean maybe that was the artwork that was criticized was a drawing that wasn't great and um I I feel bad for people and I do think everyone can paint if they want to I'm I don't think it's maybe the medium for every single person on the planet but I do think anyone can learn to make a good painting because it's kind of just following laws. What do you hope people take away from the journey you shared in the book? I honestly think the book was pretty close to what I'd hoped when I set out, which I'm really happy about. Yeah, I feel really lucky that it, I was able to keep it pretty close to what I envisioned. Um, and I And I feel... It, I feel like it, it did what I wanted it to do, which I hope is, then that's, I guess, my hope for people that read it. I hope anyone who's ever wanted to find a way to express themselves or to meet other people or to, you know, to build a community or, or just have beautiful things to make for their homes or to give away. I hope that this book is, uh, you know, it's interesting. I met with a, a minister over at the church over here to look at renting the space out. And he said something that I just can't get rid of in my head. We were talking about how now there's all these tables outside of the churches now. And, you know, and like you can sit down outside the library. Like there's this idea of making them more community places than, than they used to be. And he said, yes, we're, we're trying to have, we used to be high threshold. There was a high threshold to get into our community and to get into our buildings. It was, a, you had to climb over some things to get in. We're lowering the threshold. And we want to lower the threshold and lower the threshold until everyone can just come right in. And I, I feel like this book, I hope that I lowered the threshold of the idea of who can paint and removed some of the barriers, like learning how to draw first and, and you know, doing a perfect apple versus just doing a symbol of an apple can be just as good and can represent you. You know, I, I like the idea of, I hope I've lowered the threshold of access is my goal. You know, the thing that I wanted to say listeners is that you know I had the honor of kind of going to a gallery show um, more than once actually of painters and Sarah's painting school each time she she teaches a class at the end um, there's there's a group show that people can come and see and it's really incredible to see the work Um, but I was thinking in reading your book that obviously not everyone gets to you know, have you be their physical teacher, but it seems to me that meant much like the women in my community who came together to teach, uh, to be taught by you, groups of friends can buy this book together. And I'm sure that's already happening, but it just seemed like such a no brainer, like get six friends, get the book, 
find a space, whether it's your basement or some community space that you can share, or depending on the weather where you live, you can do it outdoors, but you can go through it together. I mean, it really is a step-by-step, chapter-by-chapter. Sarah takes you through, literally, it's like she's walking into the craft store with you. And depending on what price point you're comfortable with, she will show you like, you can have this brush or you can have this brush. They're both good. So depending on your economics at the moment, um, is that a dog? Yes, I know. I'm oh. like trying to snap her under the flute. No, I just was like, what is that noise? Um, sorry. Anyway, it's, don't be sorry. Anyway, it's an incredible thing. And I feel like everyone can sort of, you can do it home alone or you can do it with a group of friends. And it will feel like Sarah is with you because it's so personal. And she really just takes you through every step of the way shopping for materials, step one, step two, step three. And it is such a loving, generous, unjudgmental book. And it just also, you'll see, it's just a really beautiful book to hold and it will really inspire you. And I think the most important thing that you kind of touched upon is this idea of community. Um, it will open up a community of other people uh, who want to make things or who receive the thing from you or who just want to feel like in some small way they can make the world a more beautiful place when things are feeling a little dark. It is also, I have to say, Sarah, and she says this in her book, she's truly one of the most optimistic people I know. And it's really lovely as you read this book to feel that optimism seep into your own body. It's just incredible. Before I let you go, Sarah Wooster, is there... Well, you know this is coming. Is there a woman <laughs> chat you can share? And it's fine if your dog makes noise. Yeah, I'm sorry. She, she might be doing that. I don't know what she's That's growing okay. up. Um, okay, this I this I picked because you are an actor. I thought you might get a kick out of the story. So one of my best friends is a film director and screenwriter. And she, like, it was probably almost 20 years ago, was up for the Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival. And I, I went over there, but I didn't think, we didn't think we'd be able to go to any of the openings because we were like 27 year old dirtbags. <laughs> so she, um, she, I get there with nothing nice to her. And she said, you get, we have, I get two tickets a night. So one night you get to go to the red carpet. And I was, I was, I had no money. I had nothing. I mean, there was nothing I could do. Like I had to wear what I had. And so I thought I hobbled together like a kind of a Bjork inspired ridiculous outfit. And I have the giant gold ticket and the, you know, all of the laminates you need. And I get through the first couple of people and I get all the way to the red carpet. I'm standing there with the last two security guards and they tell me in something in French. And I'm thinking, I don't know what they're saying. And he keeps saying it in French and I've had only high school French. So I don't know what he's saying exactly. Finally, this very nice couple, the gentleman leans over and he's like, I'm sorry. He said, your dress, it is not nice enough. You can't go in. <laughs> so I had to walk all the way back down with everyone staring at me. And it was so clearly that I had all the gear to get in and people were looking away. I mean, there was, it was, my boyfriend was staring at the time was staring at the jumbotron to take a picture of me going on the red carpet I was the, I mean, looking back, I'm like, someone I know needs to get back in the film festival so I can go back and have my revenge with a dress that actually will get me in the door. Okay. I thought you'd, I thought you'd like that story. I cannot. <laughs> so, so 
now it's funny, right? At the time, yeah. did you see the humor in it? Was it no. ironic or were you devastated? Devastated. I mean, and what's funny is then I went to go meet everyone else we were there with. And my boyfriend must have texted ahead what happened. So nobody would look at me. (laughs) They were just mortified on my behalf. But I swear, someday I'm going to go back there and walk up that red carpet. Do you know what? When you are there, because your book has been turned into a movie called (laughs) Save Your Life. Uh, we'll show them. We'll show them. I'll all. show them. Maybe I'll, if I could fit into it, I'll drag out the same dress and see if I can get in. Can you imagine? By the way, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and you know what? Had a different security guard been there, you would have gone through. Like, bad luck that day. Great luck with the agent and the publisher for this. Exactly. So, I'd rather have that good luck. Exactly. Yes. Um, Sarah, thank you so much for coming on. Thank the podcast you. Today. I'm just so thrilled to be part of it. I love what you're doing. Thank you so much. One more thing. I keep getting emails asking how to donate to the podcast. First of all, thank you in advance. You are the kindest humans. Just go to littleknownfactspodcast.com slash donations. That is where you donate. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. This episode of Little Known Facts was edited by Nicholas Klar. We record in New York City. The Little Known Facts theme song was written and recorded and sung by Georgia Famusa with backup vocals by Caleb Famusa. Thank you.